If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with James Madison. He'll be answering our call in 1816, towards the end of his second term as president. A few days ago, I called a historian and asked him, what do people ask you about James Madison? He said, they don't ask me anything. They don't have a bleeping clue who he was or what he did. I wasn't surprised to hear that because I was thinking the same thing. And that is what I hope you enjoy about these conversations. You get to learn who these people are from their point of view. Madison was the father of our Constitution. He's responsible for your free speech and freedom of religion. In this episode, I'm going to ask him what he meant about your Second Amendment, your right to own the guns or to own all the guns. And he'll know the answer because he wrote it. Prior to the Constitution, a document called the Articles of Confederation was barely holding the nation together with scotch tape and chewing gum. When the states didn't see the benefits of uniting and giving the people rights, Madison and Hamilton wrote the Federalist Papers to sell the concept to the masses. It was the ratification of the Constitution that transformed 13 sovereign states into the United States of America. And finally, when the British violated the peace treaty with America, Madison declared war. Then he survived the British burning the capital city to the ground and then negotiated an end of the war, resulting in America once again securing independence from Britain. The freedoms that most Americans are experiencing right now exist as a result of a 5'2", 100-pound intellectual that they know nothing about. That changes now. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and chess enthusiasts everywhere, I give you James Madison. Hello, is that you, President Madison? Indeed, sir, it is. Sir, I am so excited to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand, it's called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting near one another, having a conversation in your library at... Montpelier. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And sir, I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today because your life and your legacy is fascinating to me, but it's also very confusing. But before I ask you anything, can I answer any questions that you may have first? No, our conversation, I will say, is something that I enjoy very much. So the discourse that will play between the two of us, I shall heartily enjoy, I assure you. I'm surprised to hear you say that first, because in history, as I learn a little bit about you, it sounds like you're a better listener a lot of times. Oh, I do enjoy listening. I always want to survey everyone's opinion when it comes to the citizenry, especially. That became more a part of my life as I aged and rose through the ranks of national government. You started very young in government, didn't you? You were in government for a long time. Forty years, sir. It'll be 40 years as soon as Mr. Monroe takes the seat of the chief magistrate next March, yes. And you're talking about President James Monroe, right? He is now our fifth president of the United States, Mr. Dean. 
and he just was voted in as president. He hasn't been inaugurated yet. So are you prepared? Are you ready to get out of there? Have you had enough? Yes, I imagine I'll be jumping up and down like a child. <laughs> Leaving down the Anacostia River with Mrs. Madison, can't wait till I get home to Montpelier. One of the things that I love about your legacy is that a lot of presidents will leave with a lot of problems, and there's always going to be problems in government, but you might find this interesting. Your legacy is that when you left the presidency, you left the nation in pretty good shape, and it appears that there's a lot of goodwill and things are moving the right direction. Is that kind of the vibe that you're getting right now? That is that what you're feeling? I'm sorry. I'm not sure one of the words that you said. Was it vibe? Yes. I apologize. Thank you for asking me to clarify that. Is that the sense of the mind of the people in your time? Does oh, it, yes, I do believe so. To my surprise and satisfaction, however, Mr. Monroe has served in my administration in more than one sense, so I have perfect confidence in him. He defeated Mr. Rufus King from Massachusetts, New York. He occupied both states, and I had, I had some early dealings with Mr. King that were quite fruitful, but I have full faith and confidence in Mr. Monroe to carry on the legacy of the presidencies under our United States Constitution, which you may have to refigure is still rather quite young. How long has it been since the Constitution has been ratified? It was ratified in 1788. It was signed in 1787 by 39 of us. So a little bit of addition and subtraction is in order, but if it's 16, I'd say it's about 28 years. I'd say that's right. In our time, people herald you as the father of the Constitution, which... Oh my goodness. I don't know anything about that, but I am a stepfather, but I'm not a father to any anything else that I know of. <laughs> well, you did play a gigantic role in the creation. Did, did you not write part of it or all of it? No, it was certainly. I, in fact, I have. It was a joint effort. Unlike the goddess of wisdom, I recall saying, Mr. Dean, it was not the work of a single brain. It was the work of many heads and many hands. Tell me about your role, though, in the creation of the Constitution. Because I've read, I've read many things about this, but what was your role? Because obviously, if in our time, they call you the father of the Constitution, and I think it's fantastic that you're being humble right now, but you wouldn't have that title in our time if you hadn't played a significant role. What was your role? I, was, I suppose I was an instigator of it. I was a proponent of it. I found that the Articles of Confederation were severely lacking in their ability to carry the country once we defeated Great Britain in the war. And others, at the time we called ourselves Federalists, proposed that we meet in Philadelphia to call a convention somewhat as a mystery to everyone how it all occurred because nothing was written down on paper as a formal rule that we were given permission to simply revise the Articles of Confederation, and we ended up doing much more than that. And it was George Washington who presided over the convention that wrote me a letter that said that he thought that the Articles should be probed to the bottom and made with radical cures. And I didn't get the quote exactly right, but those were the key words. And other of us felt that the modifications to the Articles had to be that severe but the reason that we could rationalize that was because it was the only way that we could serve the ultimate goal, which was to the following, 
to meet the exigencies of the Union. When you're talking about the Articles of Confederation being insufficient, what was insufficient about them in your mind? I think in my mind and in everyone's mind to a certain extent was that there was nobody to actually take control of the government. It was a single legislative body. Everything was done in committee. The Declaration of Independence only gave us 13 sovereign states, which were going to clearly become to our minds 13 sovereign states, which means that we would break apart in very short order. During studies that I did, thanks to Mr. Jefferson, and I can get into that if you'd like, I studied all of the different governmental systems known to mankind, essentially because Jefferson sent me 200 books from Paris so that I could figure out what all the different levels of history and how it transpired over the course of time. And it was very disappointing to find that the only thing that worked over hundreds of years was a monarchy. And this was far from a system that could rival a monarchy. And so we had to create a form of a republic. We did not create a literal democracy. We formed a representative republic, but it had aspects that were unique to America. And that was because, is because of some of my work. So he sent you 200 books from Paris? <laughs> yes. If you want to get any kind of book on any kind of subject, that's the city that you want to be in. Yes, two trunk loads came, arrived on my doorstep at Montpelier, and I read every one. And it was, it was a dismal conclusion that we had to come to. I mean, even Rome didn't last forever. So when I say that our government system is 28 years old, we are all still rather in shock that it's lasted as long as it has. It's going to last a lot longer and a lot longer. We're more than 200 years in the future right now, and the government is, it's always a mess, but the thing is, it's still the strongest in the world. And so the ideals that you put into place back then, they worked and they made sense. It's incredible to me that when you were doing this research and all these books, you found that the only governments that had lasted long-term were monarchies. Is that what you just said? Yes, sir. If that was the case in your research, you had determined that the only governments that had worked were monarchies, then why wouldn't it make sense to use that system that had worked? Why not make start making kings and queens in the United States if, in fact, that's the one that worked? Why go a different direction? Because monarchies often are loath to hold to the highest principles of honor. They concentrate power in a single person, and they're carried on through an aristocratic line that is hereditary in nature. But if it worked, and I'm not trying to be argumentative, but if it worked, because that's what you're saying, it worked, it seems like that would be the direction that you'd want to go. In fact, I know that there was a time when, when you were coming up with your plan for the government, which I think was called the Virginia Plan, and that was basically dividing our government up into three different branches. If I'm wrong, interrupt me. And then you're, the, not, you're not incorrect, Mr. Dean. You're is not that correct? Incorrect. What was yes. the other plan called? Oh, there were many plans. I don't think any of our plans had a formal name. Ours derived from Virginia, so I suppose the Virginia Plan would be a good uh, title for it, but the main strongest plan that opposed the, the one from Virginia was one from New Jersey, although others came and either had prepared or prepared throughout 
the convention, their ideas on what the optimal republic system could be. So the idea of instead continuing with a monarchy, which had proven to work, even though there are all, pro- all kinds of problems with that, of creating this government where there were three branches. Did that come from you then? Was that your idea from all of this study? No, that's precedent. The Montesquieu was one of the most lauded of the philosophes, and he proposed a separation of power. And the other one that I used from Montesquieu was checks and balances. The, the Constitution that we have is different because it's more complex. It has a layered system of checks and balances. Not only do we have the three branches of government to look upon one another, not as friends almost, but as foes, not literally, but they were to oppose each other such that one would not usurp power from another, which is one of the weaknesses of monarchy was the frailty of men. Kings sometimes become corrupt and corruption leads to power mongering and violence and an inequality in the populace. So our vision of a proper country was that if you know the three first three words of the Constitution, it's we the people. So the people, the citizenry, are the sovereigns, and the government is there to serve the people, whereas a monarchy is the other way around. You literally just turned the whole thing upside down, didn't you? Oh, we, I would say yes, and that's the reason because well, here's something that's a little humorous for you, perhaps, Mr. Teen, is since you did not witness what happened in Philadelphia, first of all, we had to poke, prod, and pry Mr. Washington out of Mount Vernon in order to get him to come. But once we got him there, he presided over the convention and promptly said that it would be conducted in secret. And that was because we knew that we were going to do much more than Congress had authorized us to do. We were not going to modify the Articles of Confederation. We were going to scrap them and start over from the beginning, from the ground up, writing this document literally from the seat of our pants on a day-to-day basis. So how did they keep it a secret? What did that look like? Is that, was that George Washington's idea? Yes, it came from his mouth, literally. He said nothing be published, printed, or otherwise communicated without leave. And it we all held so- our promise. And you all held your promise. It's, it's, it had to be so interesting during that time because everything, it, at least it appears, everything was new. You're not just managing an existing government. Everything you're building, everything you're creating, I mean, you're looking at this document, the, the Articles of, of Confederation, and you're looking at that, and although it had all kinds of flaws, it did kind of keep things together for 10 years, didn't it? Oh, very loosely, very loosely. It did not serve the cause at all in order to overcome Great Britain's world power. We had, there was no taxation of the colonists at the time in order to contribute to a war chest. You must know that we were millions of dollars in debt, both domestically and foreignly, after the war was over. And it was quite literally a volunteer effort between the colonies that wanted to participate and those that did not. That's why you had to get past that point. You had to move on and rewrite a constitution because it didn't pull the colonies together. The colonies were still existing, but they weren't moving forward. Is that what you're saying? There's an interesting – yes, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mr. Dean. That is an ungentlemanly thing to do, and I do apologize. Is it appropriate now for me to speak? Yes, please. 
you may or may not know that as early as 1754, Benjamin Franklin went to Albany, New York with his son and proposed a unifying system of government, and it was turned down. So there were efforts along the way to foresee how 13 separate colonies all aligned along the eastern seaboard of our continent could be stronger if we unified those land masses together and became one United States of America. And that, the reason I bring up 1754 Albany Congress was because Haudenosaunee native peoples had created that kind of a concept, and we use that concept bound as branches together. And it was their idea with the five nations. They're literally six nations, but they were five of the large nations that said that they were stronger together than they would be if they were separate. And the analogy they used were sticks bound together. And it became part of the symbol that the eagle has in his claws. And that was the main idea that Franklin brought back was that we could be stronger as one United States of America instead of 13 separate countries all bordered along each other's, uh, I suppose I have to be redundant, along each other's border. So that is what the, in the symbol of the United States with the eagle holding those sticks, that's where, that's where that bundle of sticks comes from. Yes, sir. I didn't know that. That's super interesting. So you had mentioned Benjamin Franklin. What kind of relationship do you have with Mr. Franklin or what do you know of him? He's a great man. I didn't know him very much or very long. Our age difference was so large. He was born in 1706. I was born in 1751. So by the time we attended the convention in Philadelphia together, he was, I'm sorry to say, only three years from death. He was 81 years old. I was 36. He did kind of come in at the end of the revolution, didn't he? I, I I'd like to ask you to qualify that a little more, Mr. Dean. Dr. Franklin had an impact on the world. No, I completely agree with you there. His biography is one of my favorite books of all. But it does seem like he was definitely one of the older, wiser sage men sitting in pretty much any room, for example, during the, uh, the Second Continental Congress. Would he have been the oldest person in the room? Yes, I do believe he was the oldest person. He was only one of six people who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Yeah, he tell, he, his story is fantastic, that's for sure. Tell me about your early life, if you don't mind, because there's some things that happen later in your life, specifically relating to slavery, that seem a little inconsistent with the way that you grew up. You grew up with slaves in your household. Did your, didn't your family have quite a few slaves on the property? Yes, my father had a plantation that was the largest in Orange County, so our workforce included a number of slaves. What are, you, what are your feelings about that, and how have they changed over the years? You want me to talk directly on the issue of slavery first? Yes, I would love you to. Slavery is an abysmal thing. We can't deny that. I inherited the slaves from my father, and... I did use the slaves, and they still work for me on my plantation. And that is the nature of life in the time period in which I live, especially in the southern states. And one of the reasons it got put on the back burner as far as many of us feeling that it was an abysmal practice that needed to be done away with was that 
it happens in a poor period of time, right in the middle of where we were building this new government system. And when we have slaveholders in South Carolina, especially, and to a lesser extent in North Carolina and in Virginia, in order to appease all of these people that our agrarian economy is based on, and some of the some of us envision that the future of our country lies in the agrarian system, that there are so many people required to, to work it that if they were to be immediately emancipated, not only would it put all of us out of business, it would create chaos in the country. And we have no system to just open the gates, so to speak. There has been many times that gradual emancipation has been discussed and even implemented on the state level. But the hardest parts was in order to get the Constitution ratified and our country started, that we had to table that. I cannot speak specifically to what happened behind those closed doors, but I don't think it's out of the order for me to say that the, it started early in the discussions with myself, quite honestly, but was tabled until August. It wasn't even brought up again until August, and it was signed on September the 17th in 17 and 87. And that was because of all of the compromises that were being made on the floor and off the floor after the day's end was finished was to appease the largest slaveholding states such that the nine states required to ratify the Constitution would be insured. It's interesting because when you think of, looking at it from where we are, when you think of slavery, it seems like this fight for independence that we have, and this struggle to, to be free of Great Britain, is, I don't even understand how we think that slavery is okay when literally we're trying to get freedom ourselves. That concept, is that something that, that you struggled with throughout your life? I don't think I could admit to that in my early years. It was a part of my life that was accepted. As a very young person, you don't have the wherewithal to understand things beyond your own local town in the beginning. But there was an effort by Mr. Jefferson to eradicate it in the Declaration of Independence, and that was not implemented. And there are a lot of things to consider. There was the derivation of the slavery could arguably come from King George III himself because they had slavery in their system. We were subjects of King George III as British subjects. And so the derivation of the exodus of people to these new colonies in North America brought that with us because it was an established entity of, of living that came from the mother country. That's part of it. I was speaking with Martha Washington a few days ago, and she said, and I was asking her about slavery, and she said it was just impossible to live in Virginia without slaves. The way of life that they have, it was just an impossibility, whether it was good or it was bad, it was impossible. What are your thoughts on that? I believe I said an equivalent thing. All of us who are farmers that have thousands of acres to manage are land rich and cash poor often. And the large labor force could not be emancipated or perhaps gradually moved to an indenture situation. 
and then moved to emancipation after that in full manumission. And that was the case with my father and myself when I was managing the plantation after his death. In your presidency, it, it sounds like that at different points that you wanted some sort of gradual release of, slavery, of slaves. If there was going to be a gradual release, because you couldn't do that all at once, how do you think that would work? Would people get rid of a certain percentage of their slaves each year? or Did you have a plan for that? Oh, yes, that's in the Constitution. The first thing that we wanted to eradicate was the slave trade, and we gave ourselves 20 years to do that. So 1808, the slave trade was supposed to have disappeared, and it stopped on paper. Smuggling stopped, but it still goes on behind the scenes. You don't always have control over everything that you want to happen. But the first step, as you asked me, was that we eradicate the slave trade. And the second step was to figure out how to make sure that they were safe in their emancipation. For example, many of them were illiterate. For example, even before I was born, there was a whole litany of slave revolts. And I can't say of one that was successful. So even though it might sound counterintuitive, there was a certain amount of concern on my part that the population be safe with that kind of history. And so besides the eradication of the slave trade, there were two methodologies that were considered. One was that, I'll say three, one that there is a natural movement westward with the whole population which was taking place across the Appalachians and The second one was to go back to their native continent of Africa. And those were the two main practical reasons that we could come up with at the time. Do you like that idea of sending all of the slaves back to Africa? Not anymore. I did lobby for that option initially. But for my enslaved people, they didn't want to go back to Africa. There's already been generations of families that have developed over the years on my plantation. And if they were to go back, it would almost be like going back to a foreign country. It's fascinating that you say that because you clearly are thinking exactly like a slave would. And the reason I say that is is because throughout these calls, there are several people that used to be slaves that ended up being prominent people in the United States. And they all say the same thing. And when different leaders are saying, we'll just send them all back to Africa because that's where they came from, they're like, why are we going back to Africa? Like, we tilled the land here. That's not our home. This is our home. And it sounds like you're, the slaves that, that you owned at the time, they felt the same way. Yes, they did. Yeah. They do still. I really can't speak to them in the past tense. They are still part of our way of living. So stop selling them first. As you mentioned that, and I th- as I'm thinking of the economics of this, if the first goal is to stop selling slaves, you just end the trade. So now you've still got a bunch of people that are slaves, and you've got two problems there if you stop selling them. Number one, if you stop selling them, you're going to have people that are slaves, and you're going to have black people that are free, and there's going to be you're going to see a revolt at some point there when the people that are slaves see the free people, and they're going to say, why aren't we free? But the other one is that if, from an economic standpoint, 
if you make if you stop the sale of slaves, don't you drive the price of them up like tremendously? That might happen on a black market, but not if we implement what our goal is, which is the gradual emancipation of them. You can also hire indentured people of various races. That is a more laudable way to ease people out of a servitude and into a life of freedom. In your lifetime, is this just a never-ending thorn in your side? Just every day it's there, it's a constant argument. Should slavery exist? Should it not exist? Are people treating these people poorly? Are they less of people? I mean, is this just a constant thorn in the side of the people of your time? No, I don't think so, not, especially not in Virginia or in the southern states where it is part of the fabric of our life. It's just the way that it is. Unfortunately, yes. Your wife, she's got an interesting legacy about her as well. In fact, a lot of people know her name in our time for a reason that is almost embarrassing to say, to be quite honest with you, although it sounds like she was an extraordinary woman. But I guess I'm wondering, Dolly's family, when she was young, didn't they release all, all of their slaves when she was very young? Yes, because she came from a Quaker family. When she eventually married you then, when she goes from having no slaves and being raised that we got to give all these slaves up because this is not good, and then you marry her, and now all of a sudden you've got 100 slaves, what was her reaction to that? Was she okay with it? or? I don't think I can speak for Mrs. Madison in that regard. She had to transition her lifestyle. That is a fact. You'd have to ask her. Yeah, hopefully I'll be able to at some point. In our time, and sir, I know this is very trivial, but your wife's name is the name of a company that makes cupcakes here. <laughs> There's a Dolly Madison cupcake. A cupcake? A cupcake. It's like a it's like a small cake that it would be the size of a cup. So instead of a whole cake, uh, it's a oh, small well, she one. She would like to know about that, but she's always looking for things to entice people to engage in conversation over food and drink. Do you have a recipe you can send? Do you have a recipe you could send from the future? Flour, sugar, and eggs. <laughs> Those Flour, are the ingredients. Sugar and eggs. How many of each? That's the recipe, <laughs> Mr. Dean. I suppose depending on how much you put in determines how, much, how good or how bad it is. I suppose you'd probably throw some butter Did in there, Did Mrs. Too. Washington tell me how many eggs she put into her, cake, her wedding cakes? She didn't. Do you know this number? No. I heard it was 40. I don't know if Miss Washington is a good baker or not. Is, is Mrs. Madison, is she a good cook? She usually leaves that to the hired help or the servants in our household, but she does, we have made ice cream together, and that is something that has been very popular at our household here in the federal city and at Montpelier. Tell me about ice cream. What, when you, what does that mean, you make ice cream? What do you do? Is ice cream not something that is common in your time? It's becoming more common because Jefferson brought the recipe over from France and Mrs. Madison, as well as others, it's not unique to us, liked it so much that we started serving it in various flavors at our social events, starting when I was Secretary of State to Mr. Jefferson and then during my administration during my two terms. Your wife, Mrs. Madison, she is the master of putting these events together, isn't she? 
Oh, she's penultimate. There's no one better, in my opinion. But, of course, I have a skewed opinion. But I think history will show that Mrs. Madison would have a legacy of her own. She definitely, beyond the cupcakes, she definitely does. They, she is known as the person who created the modern, what they call the first lady. Is that what they call in your time the president's wife? Do they call her the first lady, or does she have a different name? No, there is no title, although I think it does speak to her future legacy that the, Mrs. Madison, Mr. Dean, is universally loved. And so she is not only beautiful and ebullient and friendly, she's extremely intelligent. She has been part of my diplomatic team in the federal city. And we can get into the transition of the different ways that we express that during my administration, which I guess I'm technically still in until Mr. Monroe takes over. Her legacy will include her diplomatic skills as well. She was good with people, wasn't she? Entirely. Yeah. <laughs> there was a great foreshadow of that. I do believe back in 1793 is the year that President Washington was reelected in our federal city was Philadelphia. And at the time I was a congressman and we had a yellow fever epidemic of epic proportions such that Mrs. Madison lost her first husband and her infant son. So she was 26 at the time and only one in seven people I think we've calculated had survived those. And Philadelphia had seen yellow fever epidemics in the past and would see more in the future, but none as virulent as this strain that happened to come through. And when she came back, there was an acquaintance of hers that wrote a description of her. I happened to see it at some point, and I just thought it was a wonderful foreshadow of things to come. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. It said something on the order of her smile her manners, and her conversation are so engaging that it is no wonder that such a young widow with her fine blue eyes and large share of animation should indeed be a queen of hearts. Wow. Now, I'm going to ask you something, and I, I pray that you do not take offense to this because my wife is beautiful and she's fantastic and obviously you feel the same way about yours and I sometimes wonder how I was fortunate enough to marry her. Sir, are you not 5'2 and 100 pounds? What attracted her to you? I, th I don't know. If people tell me I'm different sizes. <laughs> I, do, I have become more corpulent in my years as president. I was as little as 100 pounds. Yes, I'm a very small man, not only short, but I'm small. I don't have much of an appetite either because I've been on and off sick for much of my life. But that part apparently didn't bother her. I'm also 17 years older than she is. I guess you're just that good. <laughs> I think it's my sparkling blue eyes. I'm sure that's what it is. When you I say think that's what it is. I don't doubt it for a second. You had said that you, are, that you had some health issues and that you were sick. T tell me a little bit about that. Is this something that you've dealt with throughout your life? Well, I don't want to dwell on it because I don't want people to lose confidence in my abilities. But it did affect the course of my life. I went to college in New Jersey, for example. And that was because my father and other family members and friends encouraged me to go where there was fresh air. Most Virginia gentlemen send their firstborn sons to the College of William and Mary. But that, of course, is on the coast in Williamsburg. And my tutor at home 
after I learned from Mr. Robertson 30 miles away when I went to boarding school, I was tutored at home. And he was a graduate of the College of New Jersey in Princeton. And he was talked very favorably about a new president that had arrived there. And between the idea of having fresh air and a new curriculum, because the College of William and Mary was thinking a bit in their responsibility, shall we say, especially on the professorial level, thought that would be a good place for me to go. And I got such a great liberal education in the most generalist of senses that I do believe that it changed or helped me develop the courses of action that I ended up taking when I went into public service. Tell me specifically this liberal education. Tell me specifically how that changed the way that you thought, maybe even how that affected you when you were working on the Bill of Rights. The College of William and Mary is an Anglican church, and that, of course, is the official church of England. And the president of the College of New Jersey, when I went there, was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. And there was a movement afoot after the Glorious Revolution called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment focused on men's intellectual capabilities and capacities. And gave the idea that we could solve problems with our mind and not rely on a deity to do these things. So it empowered men to make decisions as long as they had good virtue. You can have virtue in a secular and in a religious setting. And the curriculum was more, it was an expansion of a traditional classical education that I had gotten in my previous years, it just got to be on a more advanced level. So this enlightenment period is a time where we stop saying, look, we just have to sit around and wait for a deity to push us the direction that we need to go. We can do some of this on our own. In a way, it did affect how we wrote the government system because some of it is based on a concept called natural rights, that men are born with certain natural rights. Thomas Jefferson included that in the Declaration of Independence, pursuit of happiness. And originally it was deemed to be property attainment, but he changed it. He said it was to lead to, or at least the ability to pursue happiness. It didn't guarantee happiness, but it gave every man the right to pursue happiness. So the natural rights principles was a very large segment of what enlightenment thinking is all about. You had mentioned the Bill of Rights, correct? Yes. The reason that it made it to the Bill of Rights was because it's in the the first, actually originally it was the third one, but ended up being the first one after it got ratified, the five freedoms, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the freedom of the press, freedom to petition the government and ask for a redress of grievances. And those, I think, are an express example of enlightenment natural rights thinking. You're not going to get that in a monarchy. Oh, that's for sure. Especially when you get five or six or ten down the the row and then you've got all this inbreeding and not all of those monarchs come out and are the smartest. You know what I mean? They should never, they shouldn't be managing their own finances, let alone the countries. That's what we thought. We thought that the, that virtue was a very important part of a country's definition of itself, which is an interesting thing if you look at architecture. It's a little bit off kilter. It's not a direct 
direction in the way you're taking this conversation, but the thought just struck me that the architecture that you see in Washington City is much different than what you would have seen in the colonies. I mean, Philadelphia is a good example where the Pennsylvania State House is. It's all brick in Georgian architecture. But when we went to the federal city, and this could be a segue at some point to me getting back to the, one of my favorite topics, which is talking about my wife, is that the architecture was an expression of the country's ethos. And it's marble and columns. And that's what Greece and Rome were all about. And they were some of our best examples. And it helped to identify America as a unique country with a unique method of governing themselves. Everything was their own. Everything was, we were making something completely new. Yes, the government system is completely new. And the nuances of it is because of the layering aspects that I alluded to before. It's a compound republic it is not a simple republic so that is a noodling kind of road if you wanted to take it but more simply if i do want to say that it was based on precedent we didn't make all these concepts up but it is the amalgam that we created in the complexity and the compound nature of the system by the time it was done we had gone through it with a fine-tuned comb several times because after it was written, we had a committee of detail followed by a committee of style because we realized that every single word was going to make a difference because hopefully it will last for posterity. You gave me like 10 things that I want to ask you about, but you just said a big one. Every word is important in our time. There are people in our time, that, especially lawyers, that they call themselves constitutional lawyers, and that is their life. They just determine what the Constitution means. One of the big questions in our time is the Second Amendment. Second Amendment is the right to bear arms. Every word meant something, and you played a role in writing the Constitution, a big role. What, is, what did you mean by that? The Second Amendment? The yeah. right to bear arms? Yeah. Oh, that is to defer or to counteract any domestic or foreign insurgencies. Is that it? I'm trying to keep it simple, Mr. Dean. Simple gets things done, that's for sure. You know, in our time, there are people that think that the right to bear arms means that you can have an arsenal in your home. You can have thousands and thousands. You could have a hundred guns in your home, and that's what it meant. Now, I'm not saying I feel one way or the other, but I'm curious, in your opinion, based on what your intent was at that time, is, would it make sense for a per one person to have a hundred weapons in their home? Oh, if they're out in the middle of nowhere in the western parts and whether one of the early settlers trying to protect themselves and short of making a stockade around their entire perimeter, in that particular instance, in that particular evolutionary period of our technology, shall we say, an arsenal might be advantageous just to save your own life. I see. But okay. it is rather defensive in nature. We're not a country that is in favor of a large standing army. When the monarchies defined their power, it was through their armies and their navies. And that's what put Great Britain at number one and France at a close number two, was how strong their armies and navies were so that they could protect their power. Protection of power in America is such that things do not get out of hand. It's not to be aggressive. 
that has changed over the years. In our time now, the standing army for the United States is the most powerful in the world by maybe probably 50%. I don't know. It's a lot. And all the others, it's probably 10 or 20 times more powerful than every, everyone else. But in your time, you're saying that the that you don't have a large standing army and you, that isn't something that's important? A large one, no. We do need one to exist to a certain extent in order to protect ourselves, but not to be aggressive in any kind of colonization efforts. There's one thing that you had said, uh, you were talking about in the Constitution, it says that you're guaranteed the uh, pursuit of happiness. One of my favorite quotes of all time was from Benjamin Franklin, and he says that in the Constitution, you're guaranteed the pursuit of happiness, but you have to chase it yourself. And <laughs> the wise and witty Dr. Franklin. Wise and witty till the end, that is for sure. You had said that your wife was one of your favorite topics to talk about, and there is a lot of interesting things about her for sure that I've read. I, my understanding is that when the War of 1812 happened, this some people are calling this the second war of independence for the, uh, for the United States. The English burned the White House, and your wife risked her life in that. Can you tell me, I know a little bit about this, can you tell me what happened there? Yes, I believe that if the British had come into the uh, the mansion, the president's mansion, she probably would have tried to fight them off with a Tripolitan sword herself. <laughs> she also, she's endowed all, also with courage. The story on that is that, I don't even know where you want to begin on that one. Mr. Dean, the if you're talking about the day that the British were on the precipice of the edge of the city, I was not there. I was out in Bladensburg, Maryland, which is about 10 miles, 10 to 20 miles north of the city's limits because it became very clear at that time that the British were advancing on the city, even though up until the day of the invasion, my secretary of war still held his stance that they would not breach the limits of the city. And so there was chaos in the city. People were evacuating. Dust was flying all over. You couldn't find a cart to carry the things. You just had to simply exit, and the roads were so filled that you couldn't exit the city without waiting. And so because of this, of the nature of the buildup towards this, we did have a contingency plan, and I instructed Mrs. Madison to be ready to leave at a moment's notice, and I wrote her that from the battlefield because it did not look like our forces were going to be able to hold them back. So I instructed her to leave immediately and sent a messenger with that message to the president's mansion. And we had tried to remain optimistic. It almost seems rather comical in an, in an ironic way that we had, she was busy cooking. We were going to have 40 people entertained at the executive mansion. We were going to have a dinner, and the food was cooked, and the table was set, and the news came in that she was to leave with my friend Mr. Carroll and take him to his home at Bellevue. And he came knocking at the door and demanded that she leave at that very moment. It was his personal cart, luckily. Otherwise, there was nothing to be obtained, and I instructed her to collect all of the cabinet papers and 
the treaties and everything of importance and make sure that they were given to someone for safekeeping. And we also had an exit plan as as far as where we would meet up. But when I got back, she was gone. And it took, took us two days to find each other. And by the time we got back to the city, four days had gone by. And she had no home left when we returned. What had happened? The British Army, sir, burned the federal city to the ground. Was everything lost? The patent office and the post office. My understanding is is that she saved a picture of the president. And when you talk about courage, she goes in there and collects some important documents and a picture of the president. I think that picture still exists that she saved. Yes, that was a portrait of George Washington, a very large one, in fact, that she ordered to be broken out of the frame in order to get it out in time so that the British wouldn't capture it and use it as a war trophy. Can you imagine? The British are marching on the White House. James Madison sends word to Dolly, get out. Courageously, after all of her servants and her protection had left, she collected all the critical documents and then waited until the last possible minute, the moment of her peril, for President Madison to return from the battlefield. She missed him by an hour. And then, like a Navy SEAL, she goes underground and they don't reunite for two days. That's impressive. And because of her courage, a painting of George Washington and all those critical documents still exist. James Madison was a small man and the shortest U.S. president in history, yet the two of them got things done. Dolly gave him piggyback rides at the White House. Look it up, it's true. In the next episode, you're going to hear Madison's response to me asking, did you ride Jefferson's coattails to the White House? I hope you enjoyed part one. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode.